the text on the slides. Uh, but we'll go with what's there. Uh, what's on the PowerPoints was really just intended as an outline of what I'm going to be uh, reading from the paper, just a few points to follow along in lieu of a handout. So uh, the title of my paper is Cognitive Dissonance and Cosmic Conflict, a Rules of Engagement Framework for Thinking about Prayer, Providence, and Evil. As a child, I read a wonderful story called The Sword of Dennis Anwick by Malin Schirsch. The story is set in medieval times, and it focuses on a young orphan named Dennis Anwick. Dennis has despised the king of his realm ever since the last time he saw his parents. As he screamed, Father, Mother, the king's soldiers snatched him away from them. For that reason, Dennis absolutely despised the king. As many adventures ensue in the story, Dennis eventually comes across a book written by the king himself entitled The Chronicles of Pestilence, being an account of the dread black plague and times following. In it, the king wrote, it fills me with great bitterness and my people hate me for it. But the dreadful truth about this plague is that it can be transferred from the living, from the dead to the living. By separating the living from the dead, I save the living. As tears fill his eyes, it dawns on Dennis that he was separated from his parents only to protect him from the Black Plague. This new understanding completely changes Dennis's view of the king. In my view, this story illustrates something like the cognitive dissonance many people experience when they try to reconcile belief that God is wholly good and all-powerful with the suffering and evil in this world. Many people despise God or do not believe in God at all because they cannot reconcile the evil in this world with belief in a loving God. Regarding providence, many ask why God does not act to prevent evils more often or seems to do so sometimes, but not others. Regarding prayer, many wonder whether it makes sense to pray and petition an entirely good and loving God to intervene in some specific way. If God is entirely good and all-powerful, would he not act in the best way regardless of whether we ask him to do so? These issues relative to providence and prayer may cause further cognitive dissonance when juxtaposed with the many biblical accounts of God miraculously intervening, sometimes in response to petitionary prayer. If God can do so in some cases, why do there appear to be so many other cases where God does not do so? Now, I want to be very careful at the outset here to make it clear that my aim in this paper is not to justify evil or suffering or to downplay or trivialize the real sufferings that people have experienced and continue to experience, or to try to provide some kind of easy, totalizing solution. In my view, the problem of suffering and evil can only be ultimately resolved by God himself. And I believe God will finally put an end to evil and suffering. The modest aim of this paper is to explore a conceptual framework, a minor tweak of worldview, within which one might begin to try to make sense of how there could be an all-powerful and entirely good and loving God 
despite the kind and amount of horrendous evil in this world, without in any way justifying such evil. And to ask how this framework might further help us to think about a couple of common conceptual problems that cause a great deal of cognitive dissonance relative to divine providence and petitionary prayer. So first, the problem of petitionary prayer, to be a little bit more specific, as Mark Karras defines it, the chief aim of petitionary prayer is to influence God to act in ways he would not have acted if he had not been requested to do so. Karras argues that petitionary prayer aimed at influencing God to bring about good things that he would not otherwise bring about implies an ignorant, ill-willed, and manipulative God. In this regard, Scott A. Davison adds, if I pray for something good to happen, then God already has a reason to bring it about, whether or not I pray for it, since it is a good thing. End quote. Put simply, an all-knowing, entirely good, and sufficiently powerful God would know the best available good, would want to bring about such good, and would be capable of doing so. How, then, could it make sense to believe that petitionary prayer might influence God to do some good he otherwise would not do? That brings us to the problem of selective miracles, very closely related this is the problem that arises relative to believing that God acts to prevent or mitigate horrendous evil in some situations, but does not do so in other, apparently similar, situations. In Thomas J. Ord's view, this problem arises if God sometimes voluntarily acts miraculously, but does not do so at other times. And that brings us to the broader problem of evil. In his book, God's Problem... How the Bible Fails to Answer Our Most Important Question, Why We Suffer, Bart Ehrman frames the broader problem of evil, that is the problem of if God is all-powerful and entirely good, why is there evil and so much of it. He frames this problem along the lines of the problem of selective miracles. He asks, if God intervened in the biblical narratives, why doesn't he intervene now? He notes that for the authors of the Bible, God is a God of love and power who intervenes to prevent evil with answered prayer and worked miracles. And Ehrman asks, where is this God now? Given that, he says, for many people who inhabit this planet, life is a cesspool of misery and suffering, Ehrman concludes that if there is a God, he certainly isn't the one proclaimed by the Judeo-Christian tradition, the one who is actively and powerfully involved in the world. As such, for Ehrman, the evil in this world belies the claim that there is a good and kindly disposed ruler who is in charge. Now, some potential solutions, these are some that, that I don't think are viable, but they are often come up in the conversation. For some, such problems might be avoided by simply denying that God is all-powerful or by denying that God is entirely good. Neither of those are a viable option uh, in my view. One common way to elude the problem of petitionary prayer specifically is to deny that petitionary prayer can influence God to bring about some good he otherwise would not bring about. For some, this involves denying the usefulness of petitionary prayer altogether. Others adopt the common view that prayer, including petitionary prayer, is aimed not at influencing God, but merely at affecting us. However, 
While in my view there is no problem with recognizing other positive benefits of prayer, and there are many, I think denying that petitionary prayer may influence God seems to run counter to numerous cases in Scripture where prayer is exhorted and portrayed as having some influence on whether or not God brings about some good. Denying that God works miracles at all might reduce this problem and resolve also the problem of selective miracles. Such a denial, however, also seems to me to run counter to the many miracle accounts in Scripture. Instead of denying miracles altogether, Ord attempts to resolve the problem by claiming that God's very nature is what he calls uncontrolling love, which in his view renders God incapable by nature of intervening in the world in ways that would prevent the evils in our world. However, it is unclear to me how such a view can itself be reconciled with the kinds of miracle accounts that appear in scripture, such as providing manna from heaven and raising people from the dead. If God actually intervened in these and other ways attributed to him in scripture in the past, it does not seem to me that one can coherently claim that God is by nature incapable of intervening in a way that would, for instance, prevent hunger or even reverse death. Apart from avoiding the problems by denying or modifying one or more of the premises in the problems, many other prominent avenues are available for Christian theists, two of which I will very briefly introduce here. First, one might simply hold the position that God has good reasons for acting as he does, but given our limited knowledge, we should not expect to be in a position to know just what those good reasons are. Something like this avenue, which has come to be labeled skeptical theism, appears to be supported in scripture. For example, uh, in the long discourses in the book of Job, particularly the dialogue uh, between God and Job. Whatever else one might say regarding the problem of evil and related issues, it is surely wise to recognize just how little we know regarding the ways of God. Another highly regarded way to approach the problem of evil is by way of the free will defense uh, made famous and famously articulated in a powerful way by Alvin Plantinga, uh, but existing long before him going all the way back at least to Augustine. Put simply, the free will defense maintains that evil is the result of the misuse of creaturely free will. God granted some creatures a kind of free will that is incompatible with determinism, and given the fact that God granted such freedom, it is not possible for God to determine that all beings freely do what God desires. Sadly, some creatures went wrong in the exercise of their freedom, and this is the source of moral evil. But, according to Plantinga, it counts neither against God's omnipotence nor against his goodness, for he could have forestalled the occurrence of moral evil only by removing the possibility of moral good, end quote. Now, I'm convinced that one big problem relative to all of these issues is the fact that many people default to the view that God causes everything, or that everything happens just as God wants it to. But I do not believe that this is the case. In my view, the free will defense goes a long way, or at least part of the way, in helping us deal with the problem of evil, and may be supported by the many instances in Scripture wherein humans choose to do otherwise than God wants them to do. However, one may rightly wonder about evil occurrences 
that it would appear God could prevent without contravening anyone's free will. In addition to that, uh, those kinds include so-called natural evils, like tornadoes and hurricanes, or the effects of them at least. And what about other evils that God might prevent by divine revelation? For instance, we could think of many uh, bad things that happen that a well-placed warning or report or revelation uh, would seemingly prevent. And that brings me to cosmic conflict. Regarding these questions, I believe that even though it does not answer all of our questions, and and again, I'm not attempting to answer our questions this morning, I believe that a cosmic conflict worldview is, is very helpful. A cosmic worldview, put minimally, supposes that there is an ongoing clash between God's kingdom and the demonic realm. As C.S. Lewis once put it, this universe is at war. It is not a war between independent powers, but a rebellion, and we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. End quote. On this view, evils in this world Evil in this world results not only from the free decisions of humans, but also from the free decisions of rebellious celestial creatures. This conflict appears in the Old Testament and is a central feature of New Testament teaching. For example, Ephesians 6, 11, and 12 exhorts us, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, as I understand the nature of this cosmic conflict, and I could offer much uh, biblical support for this, but I don't have time to do so here. But as I understand it, the devil has slandered God's character in the heavenly court alleging that God is not fully just and challenging God's moral government. Insofar as God respects the free agency of moral creatures, including their freedom of belief, such charges against God's character and government in the heavenly court cannot be settled by brute force. No display or exercise of power could defeat an allegation against one's character. Instead, God offers a demonstration of his character of utter righteousness and love supremely manifested at the cross. On this view, much of the cosmic conflict is a cosmic courtroom drama, to use Kevin Van Hooser's language, in which God himself, via the cross and otherwise, provides a conclusive demonstration that defeats the enemy's allegations precipitating the final eradication of the enemy's usurping kingdom. So, to put it simply, the basic cosmic conflict worldview maintains, number one, there is a cosmic conflict between the kingdom of God and the devil and his minions, who are celestial fallen creatures who rebelled against God's government. Number two, this conflict is not a conflict of sheer power which would be impossible given God's omnipotence. There could be no conflict between creatures and God if it was a conflict of sheer power. It is a conflict over character that includes allegations against God's judgment and government that cannot be settled by sheer force. And third, the devil, whom Jesus calls the ruler of this world, possesses some real authority some genuine but limited and temporary rulership in this world, which is quickly approaching its end. 
As Kevin Van Hooser has put it, the world is now under the dominion of the powers of darkness, and as such, the world resists and rejects God's authoritative rule. That brings me to what I call the rules of engagement framework. In my view, the biblical data indicates that this conflict takes place within some consistent parameters, uh, not known to us, consistent parameters or what I might call rules of engagement within which those who oppose God, the celestial creatures, the devil and his minions, are allowed to operate. Put simply, the rules of engagement are those things to which God has committed himself in relationship to creatures, including any commitments he might have made with regard to the extent of rulership and jurisdiction temporarily afforded to the enemy within the cosmic conflict. Some rules of engagement appear to be evinced in the scenes of Job in chapter 1 and 2. Therein, Satan charges that Job fears God only because God has put a fence around him and would curse God if met with calamity. This allegation against Job's character also amounts to an allegation against God's character because it contradicts God's earlier judgment that Job was blameless, upright, and God-fearing. One commentator, Lindsay Wilson, in his, in his commentary on Job, comments, this is a questioning not just of Job's motives, but also of God's rule. In Francis Anderson's commentary, he writes, God's character and Job's are both slighted. And Victor P. Hamilton adds, this, that is what, what Satan claims, is patently slanderous. Now, the Satan of Job matches the modus operandi of Satan in the New Testament, where he is called in Revelation the accuser of our brethren and a liar and a father of lies by Jesus himself in John 8. Moreover, Satan's very allegation indicates that there were already some existing boundaries or limits that God could not cross, that fence around Job. In this discourse, and in the similar discourse in Job chapter 2, Satan argues that such limits, which I call rules of engagement, somehow unfairly impede his ability to prove his case against Job and God. It is important to notice at this juncture that the dialogues between God and Satan recorded in Job chapter 1 and 2 are not private ones, but they are proceedings before the heavenly council and part of a celestial courtroom drama. This heavenly council, attested in many biblical texts, consists of celestial beings, they're called sons of God in Job, who possess some governing authority relative to what transpires on earth. As John E. Hartley has put it, several passages in the Old Testament appear to assume that God governs the world through a council of the heavenly host but such passages do so in keeping with monotheistic belief. It is in this heavenly courtroom context that God agrees to allow the limits on Satan's power, those rules of engagement, to be extended. The alternative being that Satan's allegations would remain an open question in the heavenly council and God might appear to be abusing his power to shut down an investigation of his character and government. In Job, then, the rules of engagement are the product of heavenly court proceedings, such that they are not subject to being unilaterally determined 
or modified by the parties involved, and as such, may be far from ideal. While posing no limit on God's sheer power, because God never lies or breaks his promises, any agreement God enters into would effectively limit, morally at least, the exercise of God's power to eliminate or mitigate evils that fall within the enemy's temporary jurisdiction. If this is so, there may be many instances where God would otherwise choose to prevent and or mitigate evil occurrences, but doing so would be against the rules of engagement, which God did not unilaterally decide and which he cannot morally unilaterally modify or contravene. Now, many other instances of scripture indicate, uh, to me at least, that there are some consistent parameters or rules of engagement within which the cosmic conflict takes place. Parameters that not only limit the action of Satan and his angels, but also limit God's action, again, morally limit. For example, in Daniel chapter 10, an angel of God's response to Daniel's prayer is delayed because the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed him for three weeks until Michael came to help this angel from God. Tremper Longman III sees this as a clear case of spiritual conflict. And he comments that though the divine realm heard and began responding immediately to Daniel's prayers three weeks earlier, there was a delay because of a conflict, an obstacle in the form of the prince of the Persian kingdom, end quote. Yet we might ask, how could a prince of Persia oppose God's angel for three weeks? Being all-powerful, God possessed the power to respond to Daniel immediately. In order for such a conflict to take place, God must not be exercising all of his power. And the enemy must be afforded some genuine freedom and power and jurisdiction that is not removed capriciously, but is governed by some rules of engagement known to both parties, the details of which are not revealed to us and about which I think we better not speculate. Scripture includes many other indications of such rules of engagement. Some notable New Testament examples include the repeated references to Satan as the ruler of this world, which indicates some kind of genuine rulership in this world, and the repeated corresponding references to the domain of darkness and other similar phrases. Also, Satan's claim, while tempting Christ, that all the glory and authority of all the world's kingdoms have been given over to me, he says, and I give it to anyone I please. Additionally, the demon's response when they encounter Jesus in Matthew 8 and they ask him, what have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Which seems to imply some specified time for future judgment. Then there's Satan's demand to sift Peter like wheat, prompting Jesus to pray for him, which of course has implications for petitionary prayer. In addition, the fact that Mark 6.5 says Jesus could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them, set alongside Jesus' statement in Mark 9.29 that some kinds of unclean spirits can come out only through prayer and faith. And Paul's explanation that Satan blocked our way from going to the Thessalonians as he desired. Revelation provides further evidence regarding this rules of engagement framework. Therein, the devil is identified as the great dragon and that ancient serpent who is the deceiver of the whole world. And he is revealed to be the celestial ruler behind the earthly kingdoms throughout the ages that oppose God's rule and oppress God's people. 
The dragon gave the sea beast of Revelation 13, which is a composite beast, including elements of the four beasts of Daniel 7, that represented four successive oppressive kingdoms and beyond. He gave this beast from the sea his power and his his throne and great authority, according to Revelation 13, verse 2. And according to verses 3 and 4, the whole earth followed the beast and worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast. Yet Revelation also makes it clear that Satan's dominion is limited and temporary. Revelation 12 verse 12 tells us the devil knows that his time is short. Now this undergirds the understanding that the temporary domain of the devil operates within some specified parameters or rules of engagement. And Christ himself came to rescue this world from the domain of the devil. As 1 John 3, 8 proclaims, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Now with this basic understanding of what I mean by rules of engagement in mind, we are now in a position to consider the relevance and some implications of this framework for the problems of evil, selective miracles, and petitionary prayer. Relative to the problem of evil broadly, insofar as God agrees to rules of engagement, his future action would be morally limited by them. As such, some evils may fall within the temporary domain of the kingdom of darkness. It may be that God strongly desires to prevent every occurrence of evil, but doing so in some instances would be against the rules of engagement to which God has committed himself. Of course, God may have many other reasons relative to the so-called permission of evil, many of which we are not likely in a position to know. Given our limited human perspective, we cannot see or account for all of the various factors at work in any given situation. Perhaps some courses of action we think God should take, from our limited perspective, are not available to him because of the rules of engagement. Or others might impinge upon the extent of free will necessary for love or other goods. And it may be that still other courses would result in worse evils that we cannot imagine. Put briefly, in any instance where God does not intervene to prevent some horrendous evil, to do so might have been against the rules of engagement, or impinged upon creaturely free will in a way that would undercut love relationship, and or resulted in greater evil or less flourishing of love. While some might claim that God never should have agreed to any such rules of engagement, it may be that, given the kind and extent of free will necessary for love, defeating the enemy's slanderous allegations against God's character and government requires a context in which a fair and open demonstration could take place. And that defeat of the enemy's slanderous allegations is not just for God's sake, it is for our sake, because there, can no, there cannot be an everlasting harmony of love in the universe if we do not know who God really is, and that he is love. We are not in a position to make confident judgments in this regard. But I believe we may know enough about the character of the suffering God of the cross to conclude that he can be trusted, and that the all-knowing and perfectly wise God, who suffers most of all in the cosmic conflict as he voluntarily shares all of our sufferings, I think we can be confident that he would know just what is sufficient to defeat the devil's allegations and to inoculate the universe from evil forevermore. 
Regarding the problem of selective miracles, if one believes God actually did the kinds of miracles that are depicted in scripture, for example, turning water into wine, healing withered hands, healing blindness, a chronic flow of blood, calming storms, exponentially multiplying food for hungry crowds, raising the dead, and many others. If we believe those things really happened, then it follows that God is capable, at least at the level of power, of miraculously preventing and or mitigating a vast array of evils of the kind that appear in our world today. And this is good news because it means that God does possess the power to finally eradicate evil in the future, and he will do so. Given a rules of, engage, a, uh, given a rules of engagement framework, however, what may appear to be selective miracles might be explainable otherwise. There may be some evils that God cannot morally prevent because of his commitment to the rules of engagement. On this view, while God is capable, as a matter of sheer power, of eliminating such evils, God may be temporarily restricted from doing so by the rules of engagement. And I emphasize the word might. Such a framework may account for those evils that God would be able to prevent without contravening creaturely free will, including so-called natural evils and other instances. It may even be that there are many evils in this world that it would be against the rules for God himself to prevent, but that we could prevent if we were willing to make the sacrifice to do so. Which guards against the view that many people take that if it's happening, it must be God's will, so we should just not do anything about it at all. This framework might also assist us in making sense of petitionary prayer that is aimed at least in part toward influencing God to bring about some good he might not otherwise bring about. As noted previously, many wonder how it could make sense to think that petitionary prayer could have any impact at all on a God who is omniscient, omnibenevolent, and omnipotent. Wouldn't God do what is best anyway, given his morally perfect nature? In this regard, numerous texts appear to indicate that divine activity is connected somehow to belief and prayer. For instance, consider the case where Jesus replies to his disciples, question about why they could not cast out a demon. He says in Mark 9, this kind can come out only through prayer. This and many other texts seem to indicate that at least some impediments on divine action are dynamically related to factors such as faith and prayer. Indeed, the rules of engagement might, I emphasize might, be set up in such a way that prayer may grant God increased jurisdiction to intervene in ways that otherwise would not be available to him within the rules. At the same time, the way God responds to prayer may be affected by other factors within the rules of engagement. This understanding may shed light both on how the influence aim of petitionary prayer might make sense, and secondly, why God might not answer our prayers the way we might think that he should. Regarding the former, petitionary prayer may grant God additional permission or open up avenues for God within the rules of engagement that were not otherwise available to him morally. Regarding the latter, the way we think God should answer prayer might be against the rules of engagement and or it may not be preferable given all of the other factors involved. In this regard, while prayer may open up additional avenues for God, there are also many other factors involved such that we should not assume that prayer opens every avenue. Some things might remain against the rules of engagement or otherwise be unavailable or less than preferable regardless of how much one or a group of people faithfully prayed. Now Christians sometimes pray as if every outcome is up to God alone without any cognizance that God himself may face impediments due to his commitments to love and the rules of engagement. 
This sometimes causes severe cognitive dissonance. For instance, when prayer for a loved one to be cured of cancer appears to have no effect. However, it might be that God deeply wants to cure that loved one, but that avenue is not morally available to him, given the totality of other factors involved. According to scripture, God often does not get what he wants. In this regard, we might learn from Christ's prayer in Gethsemane. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The phrase, if it is possible, suggests that some avenues are not available even to God, given his commitments and goals. In this case, God could not justify and save humans while himself remaining just, apart from Jesus enduring the cross. Perhaps Christians might similarly pray, especially in times of distress, not only that God's will be done, but also, if it is possible, let this cup pass, intentionally recognizing that not every avenue is morally available to God. On this view, one can consistently pray to God for his intervention while affirming that God knows what is most preferable in any situation, that he truly wants to bring about what is most preferable in any situation, and is never manipulative but is always entirely loving. As such, Christians can coherently and fervently pray for divine intervention and even cry out to God when we feel forsaken, while trusting in God's perfect wisdom and unwavering benevolence recognizing that there are far more factors involved relative to God's action or seeming inaction than we could fathom. In conclusion, there is much more that should be said about the problem of evil and the problems of selective miracles and petitionary prayer. I am under no illusion that this brief paper sufficiently addresses the many questions involved in these issues. However, I do hope that a rules of engagement framework might helpfully advance the conversation. If nothing else, as in the case of Dennis Anwick, we should recognize that there is far more to the story, much of which we are currently unaware. The ultimate solution to evil is eschatological. In the meantime, I believe the God of the Bible, supremely revealed in Jesus Christ, can be trusted, and that petitionary prayer matters, and it makes sense, even if we cannot always make sense of it. Thank you. I'd like to invite our presenters.